This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Catholic community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz, and joining me today is Peter DeGodi. How are you doing, Peter? Pretty good. How are you, Malcolm? I'm doing fine. Thanks. So glad to have you on and join us today. There are a bunch of different reasons that I think we should talk about cult dynamics. For one thing, we're promoting the building of community, and cults are just community that has gone wrong. They can A bad community can be worse than having no community at all. They can actually create isolation and separate people from the wider world and from reality. And I think that one of the reasons people today are very susceptible to cults is that we have this deep-seated need for community that isn't being met by our society, but at the same time, we haven't experienced what a true community should look like, and cults are good at presenting a very sunny, perfect image to the wider world so that we can be easily taken in, whereas a healthy community will probably be more honest about any flaws and limitations. And the other reason I think we should talk about this is that cult dynamics probably conjures up a very sensational image, but that the same dynamics that can be found in a cult can be found to some extent wherever human beings come together in groups just because of our sinful, fallen nature. And people who are trying to build community need to be aware of these things. So one of these dynamics in particular that I have had experience with is the problem of the echo chamber. I was part of some traditionalist communities that weren't Uh, classic cults. We didn't have a charismatic leader. We weren't handing all our money over to group leadership, but we didn't interact with the world in a balanced, normal, unbiased way. Everything that we saw had to fit the special lens of our community's viewpoint. We all consumed the same specialized kind of media that would reinforce our ideology, and we actually became a sort of self-policing cult where only a narrow range of opinions were acceptable. And the really bad thing about this is that I only was able to see it in retrospect after I'd left the community, only then was able to see how much the community spirit had actually managed to warp my view of reality. Yeah, in my experience, it's sort of interesting. Um, I feel like, so my, my whole family got involved with one of these sort of new movements in the church and that had its its focus and its charism and um and then I joined a religious order, um, actually belonged to it for nine years, um that was connected to it. But what was interesting is at the beginning it was actually very good for the family because it steered us clear of maybe some other groups out there that were a little more extreme. My my parents were kind of ready to head to the hills, if you will, and you know, go start a farm with a couple other Catholic families and kind of form their own little community. And and so I think that the um, at the beginning, the experience of a group with very rigid rules and, and very set ways of doing things actually kind of forced us to kind of cast aside some things that maybe weren't necessarily healthy. And But then the more... I got involved, and I think the more a lot of my family members got involved, the more we found the same things happening there, that that there were problems. One of them was, was a lack of honesty, both internally between leadership and the members about what was going on, 
um, but also just an, an endemic lack of honesty with outsiders. Even at the very point I was about to leave, I remember talking with a priest and two um, seminarians about the fact that they had gone to this diocesan meeting and were really confused as to what to say there because they didn't want to admit that the real reason that they were involved in diocesan work was to try to recruit more members. And and it just seemed obvious to them that obviously they're not going to tell people that that's what we're doing. Um, and so we had to find some excuse. And, and by then I was kind of on my way out and it just, it really struck me like that's, that's called lying. Like that's dishonest. Um, but for years that had just seemed normal that of course you don't tell people the truth because, you know, they won't understand. Um, and I think that was, that was definitely one of those, those characteristics that is pretty common. It's simple things like simply, you know, like in your case, filtering the news or twisting things to fit your own story. De- definitely a, a dishonesty to outsiders uh, d- definitely fits with some of my experience because, for instance, in my traditional circles, we would, and we weren't like told to do this. It wasn't like someone was coming around and saying, tell these lies. But we presented ourselves to outsiders, meaning fellow Catholics, and that, of course, is telling in and of itself that fellow Catholics were outsiders. But we presented ourselves to them as, you know, like, we just like this way of liturgy. Uh, why won't you give us a break and, and leave us alone? I don't know why, you know, it's such a problem that we like this liturgy. And on the inside, though, we were busy talking about how every other way of doing liturgy was fundamentally flawed. And, you know, by golly, wouldn't it be nice if we could eventually take over the church and weren't all these other people stupid? Um, so there was kind of this because I, I remember I, I was, you know, that's how I would when I would interact with other Catholics, which I didn't do perhaps as much as I should have. But. When I would, you know, we just presented ourselves as, oh, you know, like we think this is is superior and, and you know, like we're harmless, we're just, we're so put upon. <clears throat> but, of course, you know, like we were never, of course, anywhere close to taking over the church, but we would have liked to. We hoped for, you know, a distant future where our way would be the only way, you know. Um, and so just that kind of basic... Um, difference in how we how we interacted how we presented ourselves when we were inside and outside and it wasn't it wasn't something we were taught it was just something that I found myself falling into just sort of naturally that there were insiders and outsiders and you behaved differently uh, with them I think one of the reasons that groups like this can work so so sort of behind the scenes or without people realizing it is so much that there's sort of this um, unconscious willingness on the part of the members. Um, I definitely, I look back at my own behavior um, during my my years um, in the group and the number of times that I simply chose not to find out about things. You know, I, I leave the group and I find out that there are alcoholic members, there are members with pornography addictions, um, there are members who are abusing minors, um, but I look back at, at my time in it and, and I just sort of like almost just accepted that I shouldn't know anything, I shouldn't ask anything about what's going on around me, even if it seems wrong. Um, it's not like I ever saw anything that was um, strictly abusive or or problematic, but 
it was interesting to find out that those around me knew and they just never shared it because we had this this rule that you should never share bad news or you know something negative about another because obviously that would be a fault against charity um and so it actually just created a a scenario where you got used to not knowing the truth and that was okay which was highly problematic yeah i think like fortunately i never ended up with the kind of you know with the the depth of corruption and cult-like behavior you mentioned you know i've only experienced minor forms and i think one minor form of this not wanting to know the truth is a lack of curiosity and engagement with kind of like what opponents are saying. I know for myself, I was worried to read um, literature uh, from anybody who opposed any of my viewpoints because, you know, you might get corrupted. You might get contaminated if you listen to what they say. Someone told me that they were talking to a friend. They, they were in, in a fairly... Um, fairly rigid kind of group within the church. And she just happened to mention that she had read Hanser's on Balthazar. And the person was like, you read Hanser's on Balthazar? And of course, like, we don't need to get into all the, the theological stuff here, but, you know, Hanser's on Balthazar has been quoted by the last three popes. He's a, a reputable Catholic theologian. And the fact that just, she didn't say like she agreed with him on any particular point, but the fact that she had read him was like, you've done, you know, like, you've transgressed the boundaries, you know, like that's, and that was the way it felt. Uh, it was, it was dangerous to read both sides of a question, dangerous to seek the truth. I, I you know, like, and, and no one had you know, like told me this. It was just something that I had ended up with. Right. And I think that it's connected to that us versus them mentality, which can be present anywhere. You know, anybody who's a, a rabid sports fan can be infected by that. But um, there's definitely an unhealthy level of it. And I think it's something with it, you know, naturally we need to fight because it, it comes from our own brokenness. Um, I've often, you know, even in, in just conversations with other Catholics, when people talk about the culture and how, how, you know, bad the culture is or whatever, I, I like to point out that we're part of our culture and many of the bad things that are in the culture are in us too. Um, you know, if I turn on the TV and I don't like what I see, well, I'd like to think that I don't necessarily um, embody all the vices I might encounter. But at the same time, that's coming from my own society and I'm part of that society. And so um, part of the problem with the sort of this us versus them mentality is to forget that the people on the inside of the group um, also have areas to grow, even if your cause is good. Um, you know, like, like you mentioned, if you're trying to promote a particular vision of the liturgy, there's nothing bad about that. But the idea that you need to stop everyone else or shut them down implies that maybe there's more going on. Maybe there's a lot of fear and a lot of distrust of others, which are not, you know, ultimately from the Lord. In an earlier podcast, we talked about fear as a motivator for community. And so I'm glad you brought that up um, because... It seems to me that one way to almost ensure that the a community um, project will go off the rails and will turn into something really ugly is if the motivation for doing it is fear of the wider world, uh, the wider church. Um, and and I, 
I feel that one way to help protect people who are trying to build community is that one should always be striving for towards something, ultimately the love of God. But whatever it is, you know, like if these people have a particular liturgical vision that they love, they should focus on the thing they love. And instead, the temptation is to focus on the thing they fear. And, and once that happens, it seems that the possibility of starting a healthy community is about zero. Right, because there's no, there's nothing to ground it, um, you know. And then, if it's a, an attempt to form a Christian community, it has to be formed on Jesus Christ. Um, it's it's funny how many of our fears ultimately aren't particularly supernatural. They're they're fears that you know could be shared with anyone, and um, they come from our own insecurities. And so, if that is the basis. Uh, of a community, then ultimately the community is based purely on human motives. You know, one one at one particular fear that I want to address is that a lot of people I've talked to join communities that have uh, fairly bad dynamics, from my point of view, because they're they're usually uh, young parents and they want to protect their children. They might not have such a level of fear of themselves being corrupted, but they're worried they. They think that they're, you know, if they don't join an, a fairly isolated, whether geographically or just socially isolated community, that their children won't have a chance. And I mean, I, I understand that, um, and I certainly don't want to downplay it, especially since I'm not a parent myself. But I've seen it play out in the lives of some of my friends, and I'm not really sure that the children and the family in general uh, turn out better for that being the driving motive of community building. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I've definitely seen that dynamic as well. Um, it's interesting because on the one hand, there are a lot of problems in society in general and, and things that parents do need to guard their children from. But I think the the call there is to not be naive don't don't assume that whatever's popular or whatever you know parents around you are doing is what you should do or how you should raise your kids. But at the same time, you know you can pull someone out of one thing without really providing um, a replacement and, and run into a lot of problems. I mean, Christ even has a parable about that. The the man who you know the, the demon is expelled and. So the man kind of sweeps his house and puts his house in order, but he doesn't fill it with anything. And so, you know, the demon basically comes back and brings some friends along um, and things become even worse. Growing up, I was homeschooled and, and many of my friends were. And something that I saw is that there was a common fear on the part of parents and justified that there were a lot of problems in society and they wanted to protect their children from that. But parents also have their own weaknesses and their own you know, many times dysfunctional behaviors. And if when you pull your children out of everything, if you don't replace that with anything positive, what they can actually be left with is simply the dysfunctional dynamics within the family themselves, which if the children went to school or had a decent number of friends or were connected with other families might kind of not matter so much. But when you, you know, live out in the country alone and you don't really have friends and it's just your siblings. Those family dynamics are kind of exacerbated if there's anything negative there. 
And of course, there always is at least a certain amount of uh, negative dynamics. One thing I've noticed is that for, for Catholics in certain circles, there's a danger in, you know, they reject, they supposedly reject individualism, but they replace it with what might be called the nuclear family individualism. Uh, you know, I'm focusing on my family. Like, well, the family is not, um, not a perfect or a, ideal society unto itself. Uh, and, and yet some, Families almost think it is that they can just provide what society or the church should provide by and large by focusing on the family or like they, they look, they almost, you know, it's hard to see as selfish sometimes, but I think that some people become selfish as they focus so hard on their family. You know, in the, in the gospel, the gospel message wasn't make sure you take care of your family really well. I mean, that's understood. That would fall under the, the group of things that Christ would say, don't the good pagans do as much? I mean, good pagans will take care of their families. It's just natural. The supernatural level is where one begins caring about everyone as if they were family, as Christ says, here are my family right here. Not that your biological family or nuclear family doesn't matter, but that the Christian should always have a wider focus and see every other Christian as if they were uh, brothers and sisters in part of a larger uh, family group. Otherwise, it's just, you know, I think, I think sometimes Christians uh, imagine something's Christianity when it's really just a natural virtue ethics, the sort of thing you can get from Aristotle, say, and it's great stuff, but it's not Christian. No, that's a really good point. And selfishness is an interesting one because, you know, now that I'm a parent, I really recognize it in myself that in some ways our our family is an extension of ourselves in the sense of, you know, um, you know, before I met my wife, I didn't worry about her or even know she existed. But then now that we're married, suddenly what happens to her somehow reflects back to me. And um, there's a good side to that. Obviously, I should care about my spouse, but it can also just be motivated by my own ego. You know, if um, someone rear-ended her in an accident, I could be more worried about sort of the insult to, like, how dare you do that to my wife than worried about um, her health. And then likewise with children, you know, it's it's very natural for parents to care about their children. Um, and that's a good thing. And, um, you know, in a Christian family, grace should build on nature and we should bring that to an, a supernatural level where we care about you know, the supernatural end of our children. But it can also be selfish. I don't, I mean, I have no connection to my neighbor in the way I do to my family. And so I actually have to strive harder to overcome my natural selfishness. And likewise, when you're, when you speak of family, like you said, as simply the nuclear family, mom, dad, and the kids, well, I as a parent, get to dictate many of the the realities of most of the family members. And, you know, I shouldn't treat my children like some sort of um, little social experiment. Uh, I should recognize that there's goods that I can't offer them. And if I lived in a society where uncles and aunts and cousins were more a part of our lives, maybe we lived in a multi-generational household, um, maybe family members live next door. 
then the family dynamics would be much richer, even though, you know, I'm sort of directing the lives of my children because they're very young right now. I would also recognize that, you know, Uncle Joe is part of our life and he's sort of the wise member of the family who's kind of giving me advice. And I'd recognize that I'm also in a relationship of dependency and that I'm not, I'm not able to simply dictate whatever I want. But if I take my children and I go up in the woods and, and try to live a perfect life alone, I've actually lost something. And it's that outside force of others reaching in to try to help and assist and help me grow that I've lost. Um, and even if it was several families moving into the woods to start their perfect community, they're still isolating themselves from the larger society. And there's a void there that isn't filled. Um, and I think that that's where some of the problems can come from. I know, you know, there's every one of our actions is mixed. We're such complicated beings and there's so many layers of intentionality. And if I remember when I realized that if I kept trying to figure out what was motivating me at any particular moment, I was going to go crazy. And so I should just leave that, you know, to God, try to do the best I could to act with the right motivation. But at least in some of these dynamics, I think it can be easy to, you know, the, the, the parents really do wish what's best for children, but they can, in one sense, they're more worried by the fact that if a child goes wrong, especially in these kind of tight-knit uh, communities, if a child goes wrong, it can reflect really badly on the family. So there's a temptation to hide. Not only does the community have a tendency to hide what happens, but each family can tend to hide any problems uh, the family may have uh, from the other families within the group. And so you end up with this depressing scenario where each family is struggling with crises within. But looking outside, all they see are everybody else's perfect families. And, you know, like family envy sets in. No, it's true. Um, I have a friend who, you know, he has a, a good job and is um, a doctor, which is a, a position that's kind of looked up on in society um, or looked highly upon. And and he shared with me that they were taking their oldest son to counseling, and and I and he's their son is pretty young still, and so I was really proud of him for for doing that because I think it would be easy for him to say, well, I'm a doctor, I understand these things, I don't need help from outside, instead of recognizing that this is an opportunity to make a choice for my child, not try to protect my own personal image that there's nothing wrong with our family. And, and of course, the, the irony is that it's normal for everyone to need help and support. And so it's really not a question of something being wrong as much as we're all human and, and we all need help. I think also what you bring up explains why sometimes a community that can seem so perfect can kind of implode um, in a moment of crisis is because there's all of these little things bubbling under the surface that no one's dealt with. And so it all seems fine and suddenly it doesn't and there's no going back because it's been building up to this for a long time. Um, and the only thing that was keeping everyone together was the image that everything was perfect. Um, and so I think it, it's important to always ground both one's own spirituality, but also any communal spirituality on on the reality that we're all sinful and broken human beings and that even our own even our own attempts to follow the Lord, institutional attempts will be mixed 
in in their motivations and in what inspires us and they'll be limited in what they can do and that you know it just takes humility to recognize that you know the the individualistic culture we live in i think helps to promote this problem you're bringing up of a refusal to admit that one needs help whether it's uh, physical material help or spiritual or psychological help there's this idea that we're all supposed to be self-sufficient individuals you know we're all trying to model ourselves on that pioneer family out in a cabin in the middle of nowhere fending off the wild world all by themselves and and sufficient unto themselves and answerable to no one um and I know that in a, in a conversation a few months ago, you mentioned something I've really been thinking about a lot. Because we live in such an individualist culture, even when we try to do community, we bring our individualistic selves or individualistic mentalities into it. And thus, we don't really get community. We get something crazy. We Somehow, community is warped because we're so culturally unaccustomed to the kind of thick community that was just common, not not among Christians, just among natural people in just about any other culture. So I've been thinking about that a lot and wondering how, if you know that's true, and it, it seems very true to me, how we can avoid that. How what is how can we can train ourselves in the necessary mindsets and virtues that would allow a community to be something other than a bunch of individuals who happen to be individually choosing a project at the same time and place? It's a tough one. Um, I, I think of a, a moment where I had actually just moved to Denver and was living in a house. I think there was four of us and someone had mentioned several times just really wanting to form community between the people who lived in the house. And I tried to, to organize a movie night and um, it was interesting because one person would watch anything provided he hadn't seen it before and was not interested in watching movies he'd seen before. So that eliminated a whole swath of movies. Another one um, had heard about, you know, the theater shooting in Aurora and would just refuse to go to a theater. So then the theaters were out. And then the other one only wanted, I forget, it was a particular genre. Um, you know, and so we, we spent like a whole afternoon trying to find something to watch. And I felt at the end of it, it was almost more effort than it was worth. You know, it's not that anyone hated it, but it wasn't like we all jumped on it of like, you know, this will be our new bonding activity every Friday night we're getting together. But the reality is we were coming in with so many different tastes and opinions and all of those somehow trumped the, the real purpose of, you know, doing an activity as roommates, which was just to hang out, um, you know, and that's a pretty simple example, but I, I think if forming community is valuable to us, then we actually have to prefer that to to many of our own preferences. And that's hard in our society where it seems like, you know, people talk about being overwhelmed by the number of choices we have right now, um, especially in a consumeristic culture where the number of restaurants you can go to or the number of different types of shoes you can buy, um, and the list can go on, is just astronomical. Um, not only do we get overwhelmed with our own personal choices, but then when we meet someone else, we actually can't, it's almost like we can't interact because, you know, how do I, you know, I think of 
something as simple as, you know, Christ's admonition that we should, you know, offer our cloak to the stranger who has none. Well, it's what size is he? Does my coat fit him? Um, does he like the brand of shoes that I have? It's almost like we've created a world where we don't even know how to receive from others um, because it won't fit our, our very limited, narrow personal preferences. Uh, that's that's interesting you bring that up because in several podcasts now, the theme has come back up that choice is the opposite of culture. That if you're choosing something, it's not culture. Culture is something that you inherit and that you share with a wider group. Culture can't be an individual thing either. So that attempts to um, build a subculture, which in one sense is what any community is trying to do. We, you know, we obviously don't want to just fit right into the mainstream culture, but we'll have to deal with this problem that what we do what might become culture, say, in 500 years, um, but that it's something else for the time being. It's it still has that element of choice. You know, people, you know, an individualist might think, I, you know, I have a problem. I have a problem that I need community. But that's probably already coming at it from the wrong point of view. That's a very individual way to think about it. The idea that you need community so you are going to go and find, build, make, collect a community for yourself. I mean, if you'd went and started talking like that in any other culture pretty much on Earth through history, they would all kind of stare at you like you were you know, a weirdo. Um, because... I, I, William T. Kavanaugh wrote a wonderful book called Being Consumed, and it's come up in these podcasts before. And he talked about how we can not only choose our shoes, but we can choose our identities. You know, if we want to be a great white hunter in Alaska, well, we can try that. If we want to be a uh, want to be Amish on a farm somewhere, we can try that one. We can choose all these different identities, and if they don't suit, we try a different one. And none. Of, we're only tourists. We never get the authenticity that we would like because we're still worried about whether we're authentic or not. We, if we were authentic, we wouldn't be wondering whether we were authentic or not. So long as we're trying to choose something more authentic in life, um, we're, we're probably just perpetuating this endless cycle of tourism of various sorts. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and I think there's a way, there's ways to avoid that. Um, you know, I, I think in my own life, I have friends who've chosen to, you know, go to different, you know, Eastern Rite churches, um, and, and more power to them. Um, but personally, I've, I've tried to rediscover the Catholicism that I was born with because ultimately what you were saying that, you know, that's not something I chose. I could join the Byzantine Rite uh, parish here in town, but that would be a choice that I'm making. Um, and not to critique anyone who has done that. I know that, um, you know, people have found a home there and that's beautiful. But there's also something valuable in embracing what you didn't choose. Like, I am, you know, a Roman Rite Catholic and there's a tradition that comes with that. You know, there's traditional Roman Rite prayers like the Rosary or the Angelus that I didn't invent, that I didn't get to, you know, decide 
how they should work or or what. But there's also a beauty in embracing that, you know, normality. Um, we've, as a family, we've been singing um, the traditional uh, Marian hymns with our son when we do our, our night prayer to routine with him. He's only two, but um, I like to start early. And what's neat is without even thinking about it, by choosing to do this, you know, practice that goes back centuries in the church, when we went to the local parish um, at the end of mass, they sang the same hymn because, you know, this is a tradition that I didn't create. And there was something really beautiful in that, that by choosing to just embrace what I actually am and not try to invent myself, um, I received support from a community because the community is already there. Um, and there, there's further examples to that. You know, I could in, you know, I think of cooking, I could get into very exotic cuisine and require ingredients from specialty stores and, and get to be very good at it. But when I go to my neighbors next door, they're not going to eat what I eat. And that's not something we have in common anymore. Um, you know, it's not exactly the most profound tradition, but uh, backyard barbecues is one of these sort of bizarre American things that we do. Um, it only sounds bizarre if you explain it to a foreigner that everyone owns this metal object that you put in your backyard. And usually the man of the house has to go back and cook burgers and hot dogs because that's what you do. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's not a particularly profound tradition, but what's neat is you can move into a new neighborhood and your neighbors next door have a barbecue and might invite you over to eat hot dogs. Whereas if you've decided that you're just going to eat a completely separate cuisine that you've gotten off of cooking shows or whatever, you've actually lost that connection with your neighbors. That's really good because we, my family has, has been, has suffered with food allergies. And we found that very few things are as isolating as not being able to eat the same stuff that everyone else is eating. But I know that you know, like some people make a choice, you know, like they think, you know, like they want to be a uh, trendy or whatever it is. And if someone makes a choice that way, so like uh, for, for a while, we made a choice, not for health reasons, but for, you know, kind of quasi ethical reasons to be vegetarians. And eventually we, we stopped. But, you know, in, in retrospect, the years where we were helped to isolate us somewhat because it was a, a choice that we'd made. Uh, recently, I was in a Bible study reading through the book of Leviticus in the Bible. And we were talking about why God had so many food prohibitions. You know, like why, what is the connection between oysters and pigs? And, you know, like there's these theories that it was for health reasons and all this, but not, nothing really checked out. And someone came up with the idea that probably it was just to make um, getting along with neighboring people is really difficult because God knew that given the slightest chance, um, they were going to mix with and imitate all the surrounding people. So he was trying to keep them from doing that. And if you eat differently than they do, and, and even, you know, like even if you've kind of lost a real theological belief, if you've been raised in a certain way, uh, food taboos are going to be hard to break. Just like none of us are going to have an easy time suddenly eating dog. So similarly, since all the neighboring peoples ate pork and various other things that the Jews never were going to eat, it would have helped to keep them separate. But then for us, since 
being separate is no longer what we want in Christ, uh, that would be a really bad um, decision if it was just a decision that was being made. Right. And, and that's, you know, again, I think that there is a certain paradox in that community can be divisive. And if that's, you know, a division that needs to happen, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. I actually um, attended a talk once and the speaker had a pretty clever title. He talked about getting Egypt out of the Israelites instead of getting Israelites out of Egypt because once they left the, you know, Egypt and they're out in the desert, they're still building golden calves and they're still wanting to return to their, their flesh pots in Egypt. Um, and so, you know, that idea, like you're saying of, of truly creating them as a separate people is dividing, but it's also what's formed, you know, the very strong up to the present day Jewish identity. And so what's interesting is, you know, as, as a Catholic living in a culture that considers itself post-Christian, I think that there's going to be a certain level of division and separateness. Um, if you choose to live your faith, it, it will close societal doors in the, in the sense that there's certain activities you won't participate in. Um, you know, I think of my, my wife belongs to, um, or works for a, um, finance firm and, and it's very much a, a work hard, party hard environment, you know, and as a, a good Catholic, she's not going to get sloshed, um, at the end of busy season, but that's what her coworkers are doing. And so it actually does create division there. Um, you know, and she's not, she doesn't try to highlight it. She just kind of politely bows out um, after an hour or so with, with the group um, if they've gone out for drinks um, because that's when not-so-wise choices are being made and she doesn't want to be part of that. Um, so I, I think that there is no way of creating a community without any level of division or separateness. Um, but going back to you know that question of like what makes a group cult-like, is I think in part that sense of superiority and just assuming that anyone who does something different must be ultimately evil. Um, you know, maybe you know, I think back to, to my days in a group, I don't think that I would have thought it quite that harshly, but sort of like they're obviously not up to par with us. Um, and and so instead of it simply being, you know, I've made these choices because I'm trying to follow the Lord, it it's very much a, a self-focused thing of comparing myself to other people. Yeah, I, I know I've seen the same dynamic. It's where you can look around and think that you can identify the good and bad guys. You know, like, oh, that's a good guy, that's a bad guy. And that's, of course, what the Pharisees were all about. And they were Christ's strongest opponents. They thought that, you know, like there were various external metrics by which they could decide. And they weren't. So, like, if their metric had been, you know, like, these guys are running around killing their neighbors and these guys aren't, well, you know, like, that might have might have still had a slight touch of danger to it, but it wouldn't have been anywhere near as dangerous. But the things they chose were the sort of the add-ons. So I guess, like, we do need to make some pretty serious choices. I mean, in this set of podcasts, we talked about our economic um, structure and how our economic structure is unjust. We should choose to do differently than the surrounding culture. But a lot of things that are chosen in 
Christian community groups are choices that need to be made. So um, say the, the liturgy, the liturgy shouldn't be a choice. You, know, you, you talked about just the, the kind of relaxing feeling of inheriting something instead of choosing it. And I know that when I stopped being part of a group that was pursuing a specialized liturgical option, the, you know, the, the ironic thing is that our group, we talked about how the liturgy shouldn't be a choice, that this modern liturgy was, you know, had been constructed artificially by a team. But in a sense, we were the ones who saw liturgy as a choice. And we thought, or, or I thought, um, because I didn't have any experience in the wider church, I thought that everyone else saw their modern liturgy as a choice. But when I got out of there and just dropped into an ordinary parish in an ordinary place, I found that everyone around me was just showing up. This is what they were served, and they were okay with it. Some of them were ardent Catholics, and some were not so ardent, but they were all just there um, accepting what was on offer. They weren't ideological about it because the change had happened 50 years into the past. And so, therefore, now this was just the way things were. It was, you know, it wasn't the, the liturgy that I dropped into was not exciting in any direction. It wasn't uh, like a very high church. It wasn't um, really crazy. Like, obviously, like you could make a choice, say, to bring clowns and things in. So obviously, when something like that happens, choice has invaded the liturgy from the other side. But I found that the bulk of people who were just attending the ordinary form of the Roman Rite were just attending it because it was the mass at their local parish, and, and this was the way it was done. Um, and it was really refreshing. And now, unfortunately, even outside of those groups, I see so many instances where the liturgy, even in ordinary parishes now, is becoming a battleground between um, uh, zealous reformers and folks who like the status quo. And again, the reformers will always use the language of how well, liturgy should not be artificial, liturgy should not be a choice, but in the end, their liturgies tend to be more artificial than anything that uh, the surrounding church is tending to do, given that, you know, the extremes of clowns and, and liturgical dance are vanishingly rare nowadays. Their more traditional liturgies are, strangely enough, um, choice, which is the opposite of culture, whereas the ordinary run-of-the-mill, uh, ordinary form liturgies are culture in that they're not chosen. Right. Um it's interesting because um, going back to the, the question of like what makes a group cult-like is that there is an awareness on sort of when people study this on a sociological level that novelty is part of it, um, which is a hard one because any group out there um, obviously started at some point. And so you had a, a before and an after um, but I think that when a group first starts, it's more vulnerable to kind of going off the rails because there is no tradition to ground it. Um, and, you know, you even see that in the early church, like how many times Paul was trying to rein in the wild and crazy. Um, and in part because there there was no hundred year, thousand year tradition to point to. It, it had been Paul showing up in a town with the gospel, sharing it, and then moving on, and then hearing the rumors about what was going on in that, that town and having to write them and kind of straighten things out. And, you know, the liturgy is a, a good example of there was a break in the way things were done before and after with Vatican II. 
Um, and it takes time for whenever there's a change for things to kind of become part of the fabric of society, again, part of the fabric of a group. Um, although for those of us who grew up in a, at least myself in a post-Vatican to a church, um, that's just sort of, it, it has become the thing that I haven't chosen. Actually, it's funny. One time I was at a, um, a music ministry meeting in, um, my parish and someone was talking about how there was more traditional music and then there was like, um, these, these modern hymns that would kind of get the young people engaged in. He was an older gentleman and he named several songs that in my mind, um, I just think of as traditional because I remember them from my earliest memories. I was five, six years old and I would hear those in church. So, you know, for him, they were new and, and earth shattering. And um, for me, that was just a, you know, a traditional church song. And likewise, in, in society in general, I think that there's been a dramatic shift. So a, a lot of it caused by the Industrial Revolution um, and then all of the fallout of that. A lot of it caused by, you know, cultural upheaval as well um, in the last century. And so one of the reasons I think we find ourselves searching for community is that we've, we have uprooted ourselves. It's sort of like, you know, um, refugees losing their homes, losing everything they have, and they find themselves in a completely different country. Their great grandchildren will have a tradition, will have, you know, God willing community, something grounded, but these people don't have that. Um, and I think that a lot of us feel that way in society in general, that we've been completely uprooted. You know, even the advent of the smartphone is the last 15 years has, or actually the last 10 years has again caused another massive shift in the way we do things and the way people see the world and interact with each other. Um, and we haven't even recovered from the previous ones. And so I think one of the reasons that we're seeking community desperately is that so many things have destroyed it, but it takes time to become rooted. You can't just will yourself to being part of something grounded. You know, it's interesting because you're talking about you know, being uprooted and how, you know, if, if a group is uprooted and, and driven into a different country within a few years, within you know, a few generations, it's their homeland. And for some reason in the modern world, the modern world continues to produce such a rapid pace of change that it never happens. You know, for like the last three or four hundred years, um, change has been constantly accelerating such that we never can um, settle down and start dealing with a new normal. It's always a, a newer new. Uh, one thing that strikes me as really sad is that in the modern world, an elderly person is no longer kind of like a, a repository of wisdom um, well looked upon by the community because things have always shifted fast enough to make them irrelevant. So old people tend to be very, like they, they cling tightly to what they have. They're adverse to any change or to, oftentimes they become very suspicious of everyone else because they're always being uh, left behind and left out. So in a sense, we're dealing not with a culture, but with kind of an anti-culture, um, something that makes inheriting uh, anything, you know, we, we usually don't even live in the same towns that our parents and grandparents had lived in. You know, uh, when I was walking through the local cemetery here in Littleton, I was thinking, you know, 
in times past, the local cemetery would have been where your relatives were buried and you would visit, you know, great grandfather so-and-so's grave and great uncle so-and-so's grave. And here, you know, there was no one belonging to me uh, buried at that cemetery. It was, you know, I could, I could look at the, the gravestones of a hundred and some years of Littleton history and I was not a part of that, you know? Um, and so it can become, you know, like on the one hand, we have to choose to do something differently. We can't, we can't just accept this kind of destructive entity around us, but at the same time, choices are dangerous. And I was thinking that possibly one of the benchmarks for whether your choices are excluding the right or wrong things is if the outsiders end up becoming your fellow Catholics or not. If all your fellow Catholics are being excluded by a certain choice, then I was thinking probably that choice is one that didn't need to be made and probably shouldn't be uh, made. I think that's a, a good benchmark. And I, I think we have a good example in the saints because um, you know, something even in the book you reference on the website, um, Happy Are You Poor by Father Dubay, he talks about, you know, actually just lists off saint after saint after saint and talks about the radical ways that they lived poverty. Um, but the saints, well, interestingly enough, they could be divisive in their time. Um, there are saints who started movements that may or may not have been accepted, but um, obviously they always had the hallmark of obedience, um, at least to, you know, the church's authority in that regard. Um, something that I've also seen missing in groups I belong to, um, maybe there was lip service to the local hierarchy, but there was kind of the assumption that they didn't, they didn't understand our mission and its importance. And so if we kind of worked at the margin of what we were actually given permission to do that, that was fine. But when you look at the example of the saints, even if they could be controversial in their lifetime, they never distanced themselves or pushed away the church as a whole, even if they challenged those around them to live their faith more radically. You know, I think of St. Francis, for instance, you know, the classic example of poverty. Um, even as radical as he was in his choices, he also tried to spread the joy of the gospel. It wasn't, it wasn't just him, you know, sort of embracing the fact that he had nothing and trying to rub it in and point out how bad everyone around him was. He was, he was trying to lead them to the joy that he'd experienced in, you know, the Christ's poverty. Um, or I think of Anthony of the desert, you know, one of these men who went off in the desert to be alone and um, leave the world behind. And he ended up surrounded by a community of followers who wanted to be like him. Ultimately, you know, any attempt to follow the Lord, if, if God's grace is working there, he will build up the church through that. Um, you know, that's actually, when we, when we think of the saints, we often talk about the fact that miracles have been performed or that they lived heroic virtue and both of those are important. But in the church's eyes, even the miracles themselves have more to do with proof that this saint is sort of relevant to the life of the church. Um, not just that they were holy and, you know, can do amazing things. You know, we have all saints day to celebrate all those unknown saints that 
um, have lived holy lives and no one knows about. But those who are canonized, they're held up as examples because their having been in the church was good for the church and spreading, you know, their cult or their story um, is good for the church. Um, and in that sense, you know, any any group, likewise, it's, you know, hopefully becomes a, a place of holiness. And that should ultimately be building up the local community. I remember... Uh... A few weeks ago, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking that any group in the church that is somehow elite, any group that's, you know, kind of in one way or another, liturgy or um, community or what have you, that's better than the run of the mill can be one of two things. It can either be a reform movement embedded in the local church, or it's ultimately a schism. And, and therefore not, you know, like schisms are one of the few things that Christians cannot tolerate. The, the most roundly condemned thing, perhaps, in the both the New Testament and the early church fathers is creating some kind of schism. And, you know, unity on paper, as you pointed out, is not enough. You have to actually be united with your local bishop, your local church. And I found um, the first Easter vigil that I attended more with the mainstream church, I was overcome with emotion at, you know, like when the, when the sacred chrism was brought in, it was coming from the cathedral downtown. And of course, in my, my more separatist traditionalist group, the chrism also came from the bishop because we were, you know, we were on paper connected, but I'd never really thought about the bishop because, you know, the cathedral downtown was something that who knows, we might, we might recapture in the distant future, but it didn't have any, you know, effect. And somehow just the emotional impact of bringing the chrism in from the cathedral and realizing that I had a bishop. Not that like, not that I have to think he's perfect or that I would agree with him and everything, but that I had one, that I didn't have to kind of long for a restoration of the church, that I had a church. And, you know, it's kind of odd because that summer, all the scandals came loose again in the church. And I realized that I was feeling pain over them because of the fact that, um, because of the fact that I, because I belonged to the church, if I hadn't been connected with it, I wouldn't have felt that pain. If I'd still been in my former group, I would have kind of seen, not that I would have seen the scandals as a good thing, but like they would have kind of helped to clear the way of, of breaking down the decadent post-Vatican II church that our renewal could eventually take it over. Um, but whereas since I just decided to throw my lot in with the church, the real actually existing church on the ground, I felt and shared that pain in in the betrayal of the church by some of its leadership. And so so kind of this, you know, this this kind of feeling that one wants to be in control. One doesn't want things to happen to one as can happen if one accepts um, an organic community that one didn't found or a wider church that one didn't start. I, I was talking to a, a friend recently and he posited that one of the reasons we're seeing such a pr uh, prevalence of conspiracy theories in the world is that the modern world produces feelings of a lack of control. And in, in one sense, like on the one hand, we are not supposed to be in control. And yet at the other hand, the, the normal human ways that every individual used to be in control, you know, working with their hands doing something that they saw the, the beginning and ending of is missing. And so people turn to these kind of bizarre theories because, because of that felt powerlessness. They, they need a framework. And I was wondering if the same could be true for why people turn to cults, because cults 
tend to be so controlling and that people are attracted to them because their lives are out of control. They feel they feel they need that kind of structure, that kind of authority that's missing in their lives. I can definitely say that was my case. You know, it took me a while to, to figure it out, which is also it's one of the, the painful things of anybody who has been part of a kind of a fringe cultish group and gotten out is you realize that it wasn't you can't just blame the other guy. Um, you know, I had to come to terms with the fact that I actually liked being in a group where I didn't know the truth and information wasn't shared and we were better than everyone else and we had the solution to the world's problems because then, at least ostensibly, all of my worries could go away. I had nothing to worry about. Um, and instead of embracing that messiness of normal daily life, um, I had found a world where that just didn't exist. Um, of course it did, but it was all under the surface and, um, and finally had to bubble out. But I would agree that there's, there is this overwhelming sense that things are, are out of control. The interesting thing though, is that we've also lost some of that in, in the sense that, you know, in the past, we didn't understand how thunder and lightning worked and we didn't know how to make our buildings fireproof. And in the past, people tended to sort of turn over to God the things that they couldn't control. You know, even in the liturgy today, there's a, a special votive mass for rain um, because so many uh, agrarian Catholic societies, their live, livelihood, their very lives depended on rains coming when they should. And I think we need to learn to sort of bring that back into our modern world with so much lack of control. Um, you've spoken in the past about how you feel that any attempt to live poverty in the church has to be in, or at least is, is better in um, suburbia, in where people live. Likewise, I think that we also have to embrace the modern reality that we find ourselves in. Um, sometimes we can sort of live this nostalgia because so many, so many Catholic traditions and so many saints and so many books we read go back to the Middle Ages. We can sort of imagine that things used to be better and life was simple, um, despite the fact that, you know, you could be a monk spending your entire life copying a manuscript only to have the Vikings come in and burn your monastery down and um, have you lose everything. Um, so life obviously was pretty out of control for them too, but they still, they had a tradition of turning it over to the Lord and trusting in him. And, and, um, I think we need to learn something similar. I think that's really important to, to be able to have that trust in God in a sense, then, um, both cults and conspiracy theories. And of course they often tend to go hand in hand. Um, the, the cult usually imagines that everyone's out to get them somehow, you know, um, in a sense, they're a replacement for authentic religion. Uh, religion is supposed to be realizing that one that one doesn't control anything and turning it over to God, you know, to the only one who really ultimately controls anything. And, and the cult or the conspiracy theory tries to grab at that kind of control, at that kind of security on purely earthly terms. 
No, that makes sense. But also, I think there could be an, a, an attempt to avoid the messiness of reality, but as Catholics, we believe in an incarnational religion where God chose to save us. Um, you know, the church teaches he could have done that any way he chose. Um, he chose to save us by becoming one of us. Um, I've always been touched by the end of the first chapter of Mark where the leper approaches Jesus and kneels down and says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Christ doesn't cure him and then embrace him. He first reaches out and touches this dirty, smelly, sore-covered leper. And only after that does he say, I do wish it be made clean. God comes into the messiness of our world. And if that's the case, then who are we to try to pull ourselves out or separate us, uh, separate ourselves from the messiness? Um, you know, what you, you shared about the heartbreak that comes from scandal within a, you know, an organization that you've chosen to love. And as you said, chosen to throw your lot in, um, there's something beautiful in that. Um, and I think it's really easy in a world where we can choose our own identity and become whatever we want to simply try to separate ourselves from anything that would cause pain um, or would look messy. And so any group, any community within the church has to be willing to kind of embrace that leper that is, you know, the Christian next to us. That's probably a good uh, point to wrap this episode up on because it is so important in anything we do to remember that Christ is in our midst in life, that, um, you know, every religion on earth realized that God was a great and transcendent being beyond the earth to be adored and worshipped, but that only Christianity brings God into our midst as one of us, as a helpless child, as a dying man on the cross, in all of our struggles and sufferings, and that as we try to live authentic Christian lives, we're not doing it on our own strength. We're doing it with Christ, who's there even when we fail and when our attempts go wrong, that somehow all of this God can bring good out of everything that we have to have this trust and this relinquishment of control to him, which is a hard, hard lesson to learn. Uh, so thanks so much, Peter, for uh, joining me today and, and discussing this. Really, really appreciate your thoughts on it. Thank you, Malcolm. <laughs>